Hello and welcome back to the Blush Podcast. I'm your host, Tiva, and it is the 96th episode. Is that correct? Or was last episode the 90? Yeah, no, no, no. It's the 96th episode. Yes, the 96th episode. Four more to go to 100. We're not going to repeat the counting nonsense from last episode. Learned my lesson there. And we're just going to move on to something else. Um, I have been getting a lot of questions. And I understand that when you start a sentence like that, it sounds like that super cringy like influencer. Like, everyone's been asking me about my skincare routine. But like, legit, I I have gotten so many fucking DMs this weekend and in real life questions about my mascara. And I'd like to start this by saying thank you so much. I appreciate the questions so much. And so I just want to walk everyone through exactly what I do to my eyelashes because, you know, I got a little tired of sending it individually to people and I figured I'd just do it here. And if that brought you to the podcast for the very first time, thank you so much for listening. I guess you can always tune out after the mascara spiel is done, but I would encourage you to stay because it's unhinged and you never know what you're going to get usually some good advice and usually just some insanity. And that's a combination that I personally really enjoy. So if you're into that, then, you know, <laughs> look no further, baby. Okay. So here's the deal. I use Thrive Cosmetics Mascara. Not an ad. They don't pay me in any way, although I really think that they should, given how often I have to talk about this. Um, I believe they only make one mascara. Now, what's important about this mascara, it's a type of mascara called a tubing mascara. I've only recently learned this. I would imagine this is what it refers to, although I really fucking could be wrong because I know exceptionally little about makeup as it turns out. But I just, I know what I do to my lashes, so I can talk about that with confidence. Um, but really, like what it does, it, it kind of creates like a glove around your eyelash. And um, the reason this is pertinent is because when you go to remove it, you do not want to use like mascara remover. You do not want to use like eye makeup remover. You don't want to use oil. You don't want to use anything other than water, quite literally only water. You get it wet and then it just comes off of your lash like a glove. And by that, I mean, the first time I did it, I freaked out. I thought I was losing all my lashes because it, like it looked like all my lashes were in the sink, but it's because the mascara doesn't dissolve. It just comes off of the lashes intact, which is fascinating. So yeah, I use the Thrive Cosmetics Mascara. I also use an eyelash brush or comb, I guess, to declump it. So I put on a coat of mascara and then I run the eyelash comb through my lashes and declump and I wipe. And then I put on another coat of mascara and then I declump again. And I just keep the cycle going for like 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, really, I, I do several coats. I couldn't tell you how many, like, I think two, I think two, honestly, is what I do. Um, but like, I might put the, like, okay, I put the mascara wand. This is more detailed than I think anyone wanted. I don't know. I put the mascara wand up to the base of my eyelashes and then I blink through the mascara wand. And I'll do that a few times until like all my lashes are coated. Cause I can only really do one section of my lashes at a time. Right? Like, I don't know, like the mascara wands aren't built. So they actually cover the entire lash, the entire, the, the, at the same time. Right? No, like, I don't know. Um, so I'll do that a few times. So I don't know if that counts as a few coats. And then like once all my lashes are covered, then I run the eyelash comb through and then I um, might add a little bit more mascara, like if it's for, you know, an event or something. Um, so that's how I get my lashes looking good when they look good. Oh, and the eyelash comb I just ordered from Amazon. I'm happy to give you the link. I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes, but if not like DM me and I'll send you the link, but it's like, I just literally looked up lash comb on Amazon. I will say I once tried like a tweezerman one. Cause I love that brand. And I was like, of course, like, why not? And, um, I didn't like it. Like just the the style of it. So I use an eyelash comb that has like a long stem 
that I hold, it's not like a fold out comb and the comb thing is curved. I, like I can send you the one I use. It's nothing special. It's I got it on Amazon. It's probably like the first thing that pops up is my guess. But if you want, I can send it to you. No problem at all. And if you need a link to the Thrive Cosmetics Mascara, happy to do that for you. I use black, obviously, because, you know, it's the color of my soul. I'm just kidding. Um, because like I'm dark as fuck. Um, so yeah, that's number one. Number two, I very, very, very rarely use mascara these days. And I do think that that has had an effect on the quality of my eyelashes in general. I also like eat super healthy, yada, yada, you know, the drill. So I'm sure that that contributes to hair in general. Now, I think the number one factor here is that I'm Middle Eastern and I'm hairy as fuck. So my eyelashes are naturally pretty long. Um, you know, if you're jealous, I just would encourage you to remember that it comes in exchange for me being hairy all over. Like if I don't get the hair removed from my face, I look like an orangutan. Like I, I can't go to the zoo <laughs> because the zookeepers might try to throw me back in my cage with the rest of the gorillas. Like, it's it's honestly a problem. So, yeah. Oh, and then I also have started using Latisse. And honestly, I've been using it for a few months, but I really couldn't tell you if it's been making a difference. Like, I've seen, I saw this other chick who used it. Like, she was diagnosed with glaucoma. And so, uh, like, little trivia, Latisse is like a prescription eyelash growth formula. Now, everything that's sold over the counter, I believe, is bullshit. Like, I have never heard of something. Like, it's just not, there's no scientific evidence for it working. But with Latisse, it's actually an off-label use for glaucoma medication. And they noticed when people with glaucoma, which is an eye disease to my understanding, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know that you can get popped for it. So <laughs> as a kid, I used to wish I had glaucoma, not by a kid, I mean, you know, like early 20s. I was like, oh, glaucoma, <laughs> want that one. <laughs> it's not cancer and you still get pot, huh? Um, yeah, don't know a ton about it, uh, but it is an eye disease. So there are these eye drops, right? And so they noticed that people using the eye drops were getting like real thick eyelashes. And so they started creating it. It's it's literally the same formula just sold under the brand name Latisse. And insurance doesn't cover it in this scenario because wanting longer lashes is not something that insurance will cover, whereas an eye disease is something that insurance generally will or should at least cover, right? Fair, fair. Anyway, it's the same thing, though. And so you just put a drop, oh, I put a drop onto an eyelash brush and I just brush it along the lash line on my top lashes. Where was, oh yeah, yeah. So I met this chick once who uh, was diagnosed with glaucoma. And so she used it for a bit and she, her lashes were insane. I really, like I've been taking photos. I've been trying to track it. I don't notice a difference since I've been using it. Now, maybe it's because I was already hairy as fuck. Now, it's very easy to get a Latisse prescription, like just ask, really, like no one's gatekeeping it. It's not like you're asking for like fucking morphine, you know what I mean? Um, but there is in New York City, like an online pharmacy scenario where it literally just go to the website. I think it's called apostrophe, um, like a, oh my God, A-P-O. <laughs> S-T-R-O-P-H-E apostrophe. Like just Google apostrophe online pharmacy or something like that. You'll do like like a literal like a like a Google chat with an empty and be like, I want these prescriptions. I also use it for like a prescription retinoid that really helps my skin. So like if you have any sort of like prescription beauty products that you want, I highly recommend it for that. And they'll just ship it to you. It's really great. It comes really fucking quickly. So I get it very easily, but I do want you to know with Latisse, A, I honestly couldn't tell you if it works or not for me on that other girl. I could tell you it really did work, but what you should be aware of is that it can like darken the skin and it can darken your eyes. Like I believe the irises of the eyes. And now for me, I took a calculated risk because my eyes are already very dark, but like if I had blue eyes, I don't know that I would want to take that risk. Now the darkening of the skin is reversible, but the darkening of the irises, I don't think is reversible. So again, if you have light eyes, 
weigh that into your decision making before you try Latisse. And also you do have to pay money for it. And also I can't verify that it works, but that is the whole lowdown on my lashes. I believe I've spared no details here. So if you have any questions, hit me up. If you want links, hit me up for any of the above, but that is exactly what I do. Okay. Moving right along. So I came across something on Instagram this morning and it was so appropriate for this podcast. So we're just going to talk about it. It was an Instagram post that said you should not steam your vagina with quote unquote magic mushrooms. Now, quick detour. I think it's really douchey when people call them magic mushrooms. I also think it's like low-key kind of douchey when people call them shrooms. I'm sorry if you use either terminology. I mean, go off, say whatever the fuck you want. What is it to me? I just like, let's call it psilocybin, like the adults that we are, right? (laughs) I don't know. I just, I have certain things. I have certain things with words and it's just me. Like another thing I hate. So sorry if this offends people. I've may I may have already gone on a tangent about this on the podcast in the past. I can't remember. But when people call kids kiddos, now it doesn't bother me if you call a kid a kiddo to its face. Like, hey kiddo, want this like Snickers bar? <laughs> Whatever it is you say to kids. That's like shit pedophiles say to kids. I don't know what it says about me that that's the only thing I could come up with. Anyway, um, that's fine. But when someone talks about their children to me and refers to them as kiddos, like I see this with a lot of like mommy Instagram pages, like dropped off the kiddos at preschool and now I'm going to go froze all day or, you know, whatever the fuck that bitch would say. I just... I'm a fucking adult. Like I would appreciate it if you could talk to me like I'm a fucking adult and not call your kids kiddos. Like that's not, it's completely unnecessary. But then I was saying this to Ozzy the other night. Uh, If it's your first time listening, Ozzy is my boyfriend. Ozzy is not his name. He is Australian. That's just a nickname that we use for really no reason other than I want to at this point. And he was like, I bet I could make it sound cool. And I was like, okay, try it. And he said something. I was like, yeah, you did make it sound cool, but that's just because you have that like Aussie and like artistic flair. Like you're not just like some basic soccer mom on Instagram, like, you know, posting about your kids 45 times a day. So it's a different vibe. It's a different vibe. And maybe this is like misogyny. Maybe this is the patriarchy. Men can say certain things and sound cool. And when women say them, we sound like assholes, right? Like if If Ozzy were to be like, I've gotten so many DMs about my skincare routine, let me like break it down for you. No one would think that's cringe, but me saying that it is cringe. Anyway, um, back to steaming vagina with quote unquote magic mushrooms. Wild, fascinated. Now, if you're not familiar, this like yoni steaming or steaming the vagina thing has been around. I mean, it's been around for like centuries, but I I do think that it kind of got a bit of a makeover because of like fucking goop, like advocating people do this. And I've seen spas that offer these services. Now, I went and I found the article that this lady wrote about this. And let me tell you, it was not easy to find this article. First, I Googled for it couldn't find it. Then I went to the link in her goddamn bio, couldn't find it that way. So then I read the caption of said post a little more thoroughly. And then I had to go to the actual website that she put in the caption, which is not a clickable link. I'd like to have, you know, I had to read it and put it in and it wasn't like a direct link. It just went to like her fucking blog or website. And then like a million pop-ups came up trying to get me to, you know, subscribe to it. And I had to decline, decline, decline. But then it was the first article. So maybe I shouldn't whine about it so much. I just would like to emphasize the fact that I'm a research journalist. Like I am a professional here. Anyway, so I'm going to read you um, an excerpt from the article uh, with regards to the whole vaginal steaming idea, because she just, she says it better than I could. So I'm just going to read you exactly what she said. Okay, beginning quote. (laughs) The original idea behind vaginal steaming was to squat over a pot of steaming, supposedly hearing potpourri in hopes that some of the hot vapors find their way inside the vagina and possibly the uterus to quote-unquote cleanse or quote-unquote remove toxins or have some other quasi-medical benefit. 
I don't quite understand. Neither the vagina nor the uterus need cleansing because they are not dirty. Instead, cleansing and removing toxins are just modern euphemisms for purity culture. The idea that the vagina or uterus are dirty has been embedded into a patriarchal culture. I can't say that word. I've already explained that. Sorry, guys. For centuries. That's why the myth that the vagina needs to be cleaned just refuses to die. And yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a wild thing, right? Have I ever steamed my vagina? No, I have not. Although I have been in a steam room and just kind of like bent over and like angled (laughs) my bits over the steam jet. And I was like, work your magic, baby. But it's true. We have all of these like archaic principles and ideas still in our culture. Like even, um, about tightness, like vaginal tightness. Like I, this weekend after Ozzy and I had sex, I was like, can you feel my vagina contracting when I have an orgasm? And he's like, uh, not really. And I was like, oh my God, is it because my vagina isn't tight enough? And he's like, that's not a thing, babe. Like, that's not like we've proven that that is not a thing. Like there's no loose vaginas. That is the result of the patriarchy telling women that if they have sex, they'll in some way be like dirty or impure. Their vaginas will be loose. It's all fucking bullshit. And guess what? If a man ever says to a woman something about her vagina not being tight enough, her response should always unequivocally without hesitation be no, your dick is too small. (laughs) And I just, I love that for him. I mean, there is nothing in this world that I love more than a feminist man. Okay. Back to the article. I'm going to read another paragraph of this article because I have it in my outline and I can't remember why. So here we go. Because of modern biology and science, we know better today. The steam likely isn't even going into your vagina. It's hitting your vulva, which could cause a burn. Yes, this does happen. And the labia minora are especially vulnerable to this as the skin here is thinner. We also know that all attempts at vaginal cleansing are harmful because it can damage the vaginal microbiome and the mucosa. And there is no medical condition that can be treated by squatting over a pot of steaming herbs. Now, more specifically for the psilocybin. So for psilocybin to be like active, and there are a lot of benefits associated with psilocybin. I mean, it feels like every fucking day a new study comes out. I mean, like, good God, they should have been on fish lot 20 years ago. We were way ahead of the curve. Like, could have told you that. Anyway, um, the way psilocybin works is it converts into something called psilocin, which I'm likely um, pronouncing wrong, but like, I quite literally don't give a fuck. Um, psilocybin doesn't convert to psilocin in the vagina. Psilocybin only converts to psilocin via the gut and the liver. So putting psilocybin in your vagina, whether it's via steaming it, or if you were to just like insert a fucking mushroom cap inside your vagina, either way, it's just not going to happen. But what could happen is you could get a fungal infection because hello, magic mushrooms are a type of fungus or a bacterial infection because mushrooms are picked from the ground where animals shit. So there's that for you. Okay, so in conclusion, don't steam your vagina with psilocybin. Don't steam your vagina with anything. Just don't steam your vagina. And if you're kind of newer to the podcast, you might not know about the adventures that I've had with putting things in my vagina, but I just want to repeat this PSA in case you are new. As a general premise, I would advocate against putting anything inside of your vagina that you cannot, that doesn't, is not tethered to the outside world. So like a tampon has a string that hangs out of your vagina, you can pull that tampon out. However, something like, ooh, I don't know, a clove of garlic (laughs) does not have a tether to the outside world. And I would advocate against putting it inside your vagina because if you do, you might go through a very, very embarrassing and long drawn out ordeal 
where you can no longer get the garlic out. If you don't know the story, I believe I go into it in next week's episode, which is with just an absolutely fabulous guest. So just stay tuned for it next week, or you can go listen to the beginning of episode seven, whatever tickles your fancy. Okay. So I want to talk about something else real quick. Um, And that is, if you are worried about someone's reaction to something, I would argue that you have unprocessed trauma around that thing. And if you are solid in something, then you usually are unaffected by other people's reactions or judgments. And I have an example about this that just came up with a friend of mine. So I have a friend who is an accountant. Let's call her Sarah. So Sarah uh, had been told by the higher ups at this accounting firm that she can take a mental health day whenever. And the procedure for doing this is to email several people uh, and it changes by the day, depending on who's working in what department or whatever. And um, just email them all together and say, hey, I'm taking a sick day. And so she does this. And one of the people replies all and is like, oh, uh, that's fine. But like, you're going to need to take a COVID test before you come back, which is reasonable. And then she emails that person separately. And she's like, no, 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 I don't like, I don't have an upper respiratory situation. Actually, what happened was, um, I'm taking a mental health day and I was told this is the procedure. She's fairly new at the accounting firm. Anyway, long story short. So then she had to like reply all to everyone and be like, no, actually it's like a mental health situation. And she was telling me like, she really hated having to do that. And she was upset about it because one of the people on that email chain is someone who's like very judgmental about like quote unquote woke culture and is like very like, oh, the good old days before everyone was so weak and sensitive, you you know, those types of people. Right. You get the idea. And here's my thing. Sure, sure, sure. But I would argue that the reason that it's bothering her and she's like, you know, if it were anyone else, I wouldn't be feeling this shame, but I feel this shame because of him. And I disagree. I respectfully disagree. I think the reason that she's bothered is because he is reflecting back her own subconscious judgment. And I think it makes sense because we all grew up in a time pretty much where there were these judgments. I mean, mental health wasn't a thing. A fucking mental health day wasn't a thing. I mean, fucking taking off when you were physically sick was barely a thing. I mean, I remember bitches getting awards in elementary school for never missing school. I never got them to be... (laughs) Super, super clear. If anything, I could have gotten an award for the opposite. But um, frankly, what they should have given me is an award for getting really good grades while missing as much school as I did. But that's neither here nor there. But I do remember constantly the messaging of like power through, power through, power through, let alone the fact that like mental health literally wasn't even a thing. So... Anyway, I think that that's her own subconscious judgment and the man is just reflecting that back. And so I go back to my beginning thing. If you're worried about someone's reaction to something, you're worried about how someone's going to judge something. Look at like what unprocessed trauma you have around it. What subconscious wounds you have about it? Because my guess, there's fucking something. Okay, real quick. Um... My goal for this week is to clean out my closet. I'm putting it here so that you guys can keep me in check. I will check in on it. Uh, TV racks, Handmaiden's Tale, if you haven't seen it. I mean, it is our reality now soon, so (laughs) may as well brush up on what's about to happen. Blind spot, kind of random, but it's a really good show. Uh, none of these are like recently watched shows. They're all old things because I haven't been in town to watch TV. Yellow Jackets, fantastic. Severance, fantastic go for them. They're all, um, like not comedies. They're all like a little more action suspense, good types of shows. Okay. So this weekend I went to Bentonville, Arkansas. I nearly said Arizona shows you how much I know about this fucking country. And is the Northwest part of Arkansas. Now I went for a wedding. It was Ozzy's friend's wedding. Although I know the bride and the groom, I've hung out with them a few times. Very nice people. And number one, I just want to say I did stumble into this super, super cute olive oil and balsamic shop there, like 10 out of 10. All of their um, 
balsamics come from grapes grown in California other than their one like legit, 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 like Moderna, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, balsamic that comes from Italy that's like really thick and syrupy. And I bought four bottles of it and had it shipped to me. And I got two bottles of a Greek olive oil, which is not my usual style, but it was so earthy. I just couldn't. And then I got a couple of small bottles of a coconut balsamic. It's like a white balsamic. And I just brought those back with us. Anyway, I am waiting for the shipment of the olive oils and balsamics. And so I do have my phone in front of me. So if the door system rings, I will take a quick hiatus to handle that. Just want you guys to be fully aware of what's about to happen. Anyway, now Bentonville, Arkansas is very close to my Jupiter line. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about astrocartography. It's a part of astrology. And it basically kind of like lays your natal chart over a map of the world. And you have all these different lines in different parts of the world. And some of the lines are really beneficial. Some are harder, whatever. And Jupiter is supposed to be the best line. And like being on your or near your Jupiter line is supposed to like feel amazing. And it brings all this like abundance and prosperity, yada, yada. And so I was like fucking pumped. It was going to be the first time that I was near my Jupiter line. I was very close to it. I was like, oh my God, shit. It's going to pop off. I'm going to go viral on TikTok. I'm going to make all these best friends, yada, yada. I'm here to say I think astrocartography is fake news. I think it's bullshit. That's the only conclusion I can draw. In no way, shape, or form did I feel measurably better than I do anywhere else in the world. Nothing special happened. I mean, like, did I have a good time? Sure. I also cried at some point over the weekend. I also, my voice is like, you know, a little different as you can potentially hear. Like I also have had the worst menses of my life, arguably. (laughs) Absolute shit show. Like I'm not blaming those things on being on my Jupiter line. I'm just saying like nothing great happened. And I just, I honestly don't think it's real. And like, here's the thing. I didn't go into this as a skeptic. I came into this with all the optimism in the world. So yeah, I, I really, I honestly, I hate to say this because I have friends who work in astrocartography and I'm so sorry if any of you are listening, but I think it's bullshit. I really fucking do. Um, another thing about Bentonville, Arkansas, other than being close to my Jupiter line, is that it's the home of Walmart. And let me tell you, that entire fucking town is run by Walmart. And that entire town really reveres Walmart, which is interesting when you come from not the South where, you know, we have our own views about Walmart and the effect that Walmart has on society and like mom and pop shops and people going out of business, yada, yada. Now they do give jobs to a lot of people and they do give cheap goods to people who can't afford to pay more for goods. So I see both sides of the coin, but it was interesting to be in a place that so heavily reveres Walmart. There is also a Walmart museum that everyone told us we had to go to, so we did, and you know what's exactly what it sounds like. It's a fucking museum about Walmart, so that's the thing, and we're just going to leave it there. Um, The ceremony was very traditional. Um, I did hear the word covenant like around 450 times, which is, as it turns out, a lot more times than I'd like to hear the word covenant. He also said something very interesting to which everyone in my row rolled their eyes at. He said something about the bride and groom, like promising to be submissive to each other. And I just want to say if in my wedding, some motherfucker tells me that I have to promise to be submissive to someone, I would stop right there and be like, I'm actually not going to promise that. But like other things, you know, I can promise other things. I'm definitely not going to promise that though. Um, the night of the wedding also just like a real quick story before we transition I just have to talk about this the actual wedding we were there for three nights the first night was like a welcome party with drinks Um, the second night was like the rehearsal dinner shit which we weren't invited to but then there was like after drinks you know and then the third night was the wedding and the actual wedding at some point I was like walking from somewhere to somewhere and I was alone for a sec. Um, like I think I was getting a drink or something and there was a guy sitting at the table and he looks at me and he's like, Hey, and I was like, hi. And he's like, are you here with someone? And I said, yeah, actually I am. And he said, oh yeah, me too. And he was wearing a wedding band. So I was like, well, he's married. And he goes, do you want to dance? And I was like, 
sure, why not? You know, I mean, like he's married. I have a boyfriend. We both know this. Why not? Like, it's like a good Southern, nice family wedding situation. We start dancing. All is fine in the beginning. And then he starts getting like kind of handsy. And I was like, I'm so uncomfortable. And then I was like, mm, like, aren't you married? <laughs> like, wouldn't your wife mind that you're just, you know, sexually harassing me on the dance floor right now? And, and he like starts to say something. And then he goes, oh my God, it's my wife right here. And she's literally right next to us. And so he introduces me. She's like super like chill and nice and like, oh my God, it's so nice to meet you. Like young adulteress dancing with my wife. And I'm like, Oh my God. Hi. <laughs> and he's like, this is Hiva. She's such a good dancer. And I was like, I quite literally have never been more uncomfortable in my entire life. And so then I'm dancing with both of them for a bit. And then I like run away from the situation. And I was like, that is the fucking weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And so like, A, either is this like something that the two of you do? Like try to make young girls on the dance floor highly uncomfortable. I understand. I just called myself a young girl and I'm kind of like a woman in my mid fucking thirties. But um, but like, what the fuck? Like, is that like I don't is this some kind of game that you play? Or do you guys try to do threesomes and this is how you do it? Or the alternative is that she's actually really fucking pissed. Like he's hammered, he's hitting on random girls, inappropriately dancing with them, and she's super, super pissed, but she's just holding it in because she's like a nice Southern woman and doesn't want to react in public, right? It's one of those three. I don't know which of the fuck, which of the three it is, but I'm not here for any of it. And then later, like towards the end of the night, he came over to my group of friends and I'm so happy there were witnesses for this conversation. He's like, oh my God, my wife won't stop talking about how pretty you are, like blah, blah. And I was like, okay, it's starting to sound like it might be the threesome thing. I don't know. Either way, I'm not here for it. Done. Okay. Now I really want to go back to the first night that we were in Arkansas. So there's welcome drinks at someone's house. And I'm just like uncomfortable, whatever. And then we all go to, I mean, it was fine, but like, it's just, it's the first night there. I don't really know a whole lot of people. And like the people that I know was like the bride and the groom, you know what I mean? It's not like, like they have other shit to do. They can't just like sit and entertain me. Obviously I'm there with Ozzy, but you know, I, I like to have a certain amount of independence when I'm at a party and like not be like clinging to a side the entire time. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just I think it's fun to like mingle a little bit and not be like completely needy on the one person that I know at a party. Now, yeah, so I'm already kind of uncomfortable. And then we go out after that to a bar and it's like a, a karaoke bar and like people are getting up and doing karaoke and everyone's dancing. And like, I don't know what happened to me, but I was just in this zone where I could like barely move my body. I sure shit wasn't going to do karaoke. I mean, that was like a non-starter, but even like I couldn't even like get into it dancing and I just felt so left out and I felt so uncomfortable and I felt so lame and like so not fun. Oh, and also I have like veneers on my front four teeth and there were black lights on in that place. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. And apparently if you have veneers, your blood, like your, your veneers glow purple in a black light. So that was a fun thing that I discovered there. So I'm like keeping my mouth closed. I feel so uncomfortable. I'm just being so awkward. And like part of it, and although I don't think this is all of it, but like part of it goes back to growing up feeling so different and like feeling so excluded and, you know, like be always being in very white circles, whether it's Germany where everyone's fucking white with blue hair, uh, blue hair, <laughs> blonde hair and blue eyes, or, you know, in the U S whatever, like it reminded me so much of college where, uh, you know, I like joined a quote unquote good sorority or whatever, but I never really felt like I belonged. And I was always like kind of in denial about like my non-whiteness, which sounds like a weird thing to say, but I just tried to assimilate so hard and like make myself like everyone else. And 
you know, I wasn't. And I, I did always feel excluded. And I remember in college, like it all came back to me that night. Like I would do weird, like I would drink, like, because I didn't know how to behave socially. Like, it's not because I wanted to drink, but in my mind, I was like, well, if I'm drunk, then there's an excuse for me not knowing what to do or how to act. And I remember there was like more than one time where we'd be at a party and I just like nap, not because I was so drunk, but because I was like the anxiety of like, I don't know how to dance. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to talk to people. Like, I don't know how to engage. I don't know how to interact with people. Like whatever was so all consuming that I was like, let me just pretend that I'm drunker than I am and like tune out of this situation because like that's what's making me feel safe, which sounds so fucking crazy. Like as I'm saying it and I kind of forgotten that I would do that because I haven't felt that socially awkward in many years now. But it all came back to me that night. Like, I just felt like the most awkward person on the planet. Like, I wasn't being fun at all. Like, I was just this, like, awkward wallflower with, like, no one to talk to. And, like, everyone's, like, so into it and having so much fun. And I'm just this, like, weird brown girl in the corner. Now, as all these old feelings are coming up... I start reverting into old behavior, which is normal. I I don't think it's that unusual. So we leave and I'm like kind of like almost like crying. And then when we get back to our Airbnb, I'm like, maybe we should break up (laughs) to Aussie. (laughs) No, I'm not mad at him at all. Like this actually quite literally has nothing to do with him. It's not also like, I should be clear. It's not like he was like abandoning me while we were out. He's literally glued to my side the entire time. So it's not like he was just leaving me alone in a corner. He's like actually right next to me, engaging with me, like being so nice to me. And it literally had nothing to do with him. But I was freaking out. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but I just want to touch on this because I like right when I was like, oh, maybe we should break up. I was like, I recognize this behavior. I used to do this shit all the fucking time. And then as I, you know, became aware of my attachment styles and attachment wounding and started healing all that attachment stuff, it's not something I do a lot, but I want to talk about it. So when you threaten to leave, walk away, break up, whatever, when you don't actually want to, what you really are craving is reassurance at the end of the day, it's called protest behavior. It's a type of protest behavior. Protest behavior is any action that tries to reestablish contact with the partner and get their attention. So common types of protest behavior are excessive attempts to reestablish connection. For example, excessive texting, excessive calling, messaging, whatever, um, withdrawing. So ignoring, not taking calls, blocking, keeping score, like waiting to see how long it takes for them to call you back and then waiting the same amount of time before returning their calls or whatever. I used to do this shit with like texting. Like I would see how long it would take a guy to text me and then I would take twice as long to respond. Um, Acting hostile, eye rolling, walking away, you know, not really talking, stonewalling, whatever, leaving the room, threatening to leave. So this is exactly it. Like trying to break up, making comments that you can't do this anymore, that you're better off with a person, whatever it is. The point here is that you don't actually want to leave or break up. What you're doing is you're saying this shit in hopes that they'll convince you to stay. You're looking for that reassurance. Manipulation, saying that you have plans when you don't, not answering calls, making playing games. I've done all this shit. Um, trying to make them feel jealous, making plans for the next, talking about your you know attractive coworker, texting friends of the opposite sex, whatever. These are all common types of protest behavior. I personally have done every single one of them, not to brag, but here we are. Okay, now I want to talk about what goes on inside our brains when all this is happening. And for that, I want to go back a little bit. Now, when we are separated from our quote unquote attachment partner and an attachment partner in childhood is usually the parents in adulthood, it's the romantic partner that activates the attachment system. The attachment system are the emotions and behaviors that ensure we we remain safe and protected by staying close to our partners. 
The attachment system is an evolutionary trait. In prehistoric times, closeness was a matter of life or death. If you were separated from your parents, I mean, you literally die of, obviously. But even if you were separated from your romantic partners, your chances of survival went really far down because you only have half the number of people to alert you when there's a fucking lion around about to eat you. <laughs> now, when we are separated from our attachment partners... That activates the attachment system and we engage in protest behaviors to alleviate that anxiety that we're feeling and to try to reestablish connection. So when babies are separated from their parents, they generally cry. As adults, we engage in these other types of protest behaviors. Now with anxious attachment what we see is people with anxious attachment have chronically activated attachment systems. And I thought this was really interesting. There was a study conducted by a bunch of fucking people. I'm going to read their names, even though I'm going to fuck up every single one of them. Omri Gillith, Sylvia Bunge, and Carter Wendelkin. Um, these, they are the people who conducted the study and they worked with attachment researchers, Philip Shaver and Mario Mikoliner. Sorry, I also have a fucking hard last name and English is my third language, so we can't blame me for this. So they used fMRI technology to look at people's brains and they found that people with in people with anxious attachment, their brains lit up more strongly to thoughts of loss, loss being conflict, breakup, death of a partner versus people with secure attachment. And at the same time, the parts of the brain that are associated with emotional regulation, like the orbiofrontal cortex, was less activated. So with people with an anxious attachment, they will have a much harder time turning off the attachment system once it's activated. So that's why it's basically chronically activated. Now, I want to go back to what was happening that first night in Walmart land for me. Even though Ozzy and I were not separated at all, my fear of abandonment came out because I was afraid that he would see that I'm not cool, that I'm not the life of the party, that I'm that awkward girl, that I'm like that Middle Eastern girl that doesn't fit in with all the blonde, pretty girls who know exactly how to dance to everything and what to do and everyone's having so much fun together and I'm just left out and like, why am I not integrated? Like, why am I outside? I mean, frankly, now that I'm saying it, it was beyond the thought of him leaving me. It's like a bigger like just being excluded from the tribe, right? That shit will activate your attachment system. So I start freaking out. And so I engage in old school protest behavior of, oh, I don't think this is working. Like we should break up, right? Now, I don't do this shit very often at all at all with Ozzy because I've done a ton of healing work, but healing is not linear. And we sometimes revert back to old behavior and that's totally fine. And in this case, I'm so grateful that I did because I can now talk about it on the podcast, right? So what do we want to do instead of engaging in protest behavior? We want to do the inner stuff and the outer stuff. The inner stuff, I talk about this all the fucking time, but you want to figure out what made you have anxious attachment? What it was about your childhood? What like your parents were doing? It's probably most likely in most scenarios, it's a combination of two things. Number one, they were not emotionally attuned to your needs. Doesn't mean they were neglectful. Doesn't mean they weren't present. Doesn't mean they weren't trying. They just were not capable of being emotionally attuned to your needs. While being too enmeshed with you in some ways. Now, people who have anxious attachment are usually children of parents with anxious attachment who are alleviating their own anxious attachment by hyper-attaching to the child, right? Like my parents, like if we were separated for a split second, they thought it was the end of the fucking world. Like they never let me like run out of the house and go play with kids. Like they thought I was going to get kidnapped. Like one time I was like lost in the mall for like 
14 seconds, the amount that I got yelled at, I mean, I would watch them just spiral if my brother was a little bit late, like thinking all sorts of things that happened. What messaging does that give to a child? It says, when you are separated from your attachment partner, there is danger. So then you grow up and your attachment partner becomes your romantic partner and you're like, shit, we're separated. There's danger. There's danger. There's danger. So anyway, you want to figure out what wounds made you have this anxious attachment. And then you want to take each memory that comes up and reprocess that trauma. Now, the methodology that I use for that is based on somatic experiencing and EMDR and neuroscience. Obviously, that's what I use in the guided meditations in my courses. That's what literally worked for me. Um, Also like hypnosis, NLP, a bunch of other modalities, but that's what worked for me. So that's what I teach in my courses, but it could be something different for you. And you want to do basically like inner child work. So you want to recreate a type of childhood that a secure person would have. So one with a lot of independence, with a lot of love, with a lot of parents who understood you and got you and were there for you. That's all the inner work. It's not easy. It's not a one and done. It's a constant, constant process. But when you start doing it, even the very first day, you will start to feel a huge fucking difference. Now, on the outer side of it, you want to pick secure partners. You want to communicate Now, in this scenario, even though I started with the protest behavior, I very quickly broke down and was just very, very honest about what was going on, all the insecurities that were going on for me. I cried a lot about race stuff because, you know, my boyfriend is a white man who will never understand the feeling of being excluded because of how you look, whereas that was my entire childhood. That's just something that he will never understand, but he can listen at the very least. And me talking about it made me feel like he gets a little bit of me a little bit more. So yeah, really just communicating. And the reason I always put the outer stuff, the outer work, after the inner work is because once you do the inner work, it becomes a lot easier to do the rest of it. It's a lot harder to pick secure partners when you're deep in anxious attachment. Your brain is just going to be looping, wanting that um, avoidant partner. But once you start doing the inner work, security will become more and more attractive to you and you naturally will choose more secure partners. Once you start doing the inner work, communicating becomes so much easier and you naturally will communicate better. Before you do the inner work, those things are very, very hard. That's why I always say do the inner work first. And then just a quick note also, self-forgiveness like healing is never one and done it's a continual process and even though it's pretty rare that I do this shit now it does flare up sometimes and that's okay and uh, the most important thing I have a partner who is so okay with it like I have dated guys in the past almost exclusively like super avoidant guys who if I did the shit they'd be like yeah bitch let's fucking break up you know I mean like maybe the first time They would beg to get me back. But after that, they'd be like, go fuck yourself. I'm not dealing with this anymore. Whereas Ozzy is like, hey, what's going on? Like, obviously something's wrong. Talk to me. Like, what can I do differently? Blah, blah, blah. And I was able to really open up to him. And also, like, I was thinking about this a lot that night. My biggest fear with relationships has always been the fear of abandonment, right? And I think it's so important for me to choose a partner like that I chose a partner that eases my biggest fear. He never leaves in a conflict. He never shuts down. He never walks away. He never calls my bluff. He never like there are people who need space. You know what I mean? When there's conflict, he doesn't do that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's actually perfectly fine to need space, but it's so healing for me to date someone who doesn't do those things. Like, even though he might not be perfect, even though he has his own intimacy issues like anyone else does, it's this exact fact that really fucking makes it work for us. Like he is just down. He'll sit with me. He'll talk it through with me. He won't walk out. He won't storm off. He doesn't shut down. He just is there. And that's like, I would look at like 
you know, there's always this like, yeah, if you have anxious attachment, you should date someone who's secure. Like we've all heard this over and over and over again, but I actually would get a lot more specific and like, look at like what's specific with what's specifically within anxious attachment is the biggest thing for you. What's the most activating thing for you? Like for me, it's that fear of abandonment and find someone who acquiesces that specific thing that's the most important thing rather than just this like broad general thing and you know I always I really think the inner work is the most important thing so like whether it is that you take my course or whatever it is that works for you because like maybe my course won't work for you my course is what worked for me that's why I created it but Find what works for you because it's not as simple as just dating a secure person. I'm yet to meet someone who's been able to do deep healing by just taking action steps. You, in my experience, always have to get in there. You have to get into the subconscious and do the actual healing. Everything else is just a surface. It's a band-aid solution. Eventually shit will come up. That's always been my experience. So yeah, that's that's a bit on protest behavior. Threatening to break up when you don't actually want to break up is a type of protest behavior. That's why we do it. That's this to me is like how we heal it. And, you know, no matter what you're going through, if you find yourself kind of reverting to old behavior once in a while, I just want to give you the grace and the space and say that's okay and find people that tolerate that because... I think there's nothing worse in this world than being around people who demand perfection. Like I remember when I was dating the comedian, his demand was perfection. It was, you know, you fuck up one t- one more time, we're done. Like there was no grace, there was no space, there was no uh, and I, like I don't know who that's right for honestly. Like I don't know I there's not one person on the face of the planet that I'd be like you should date someone like that like I don't know who could date someone like that I don't know if any of this makes sense but just like have people in your life that allow you to be human and fuck up once in a while and that doesn't mean that it's okay to fuck up I'm not saying like pull this shit all the time I'm not saying engage in protest behavior 24 7 because I also think we should have boundaries and we shouldn't put up with that but I don't think we need to demand perfection out of people ever so yeah that's that on that I hope everyone had a really fucking good week. Next week, we have a guest on. It's a really, really fun episode. That's the 97th episode. And then the third one after that will be 100. And I believe that's how counting works. Okay. Um, Anyway, love you guys. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you took something from it, if you learned something, if you resonate with it, please, please, please share it with people that you know. That is how this podcast grows. It helps the podcast so much. Rate, review, subscribe, leave a review. It takes a few seconds for me. It makes a world of a difference for me, for you. What? (laughs) Oh, also, if I sound weird, I think something happened to my voice in Bentonville, aka Land of Walmart. But yeah, seriously, share it with people. Um, If you are listening and you're like, fuck, I have a friend who pulls this shit all the time, please share the episode with that friend. Let's all help each other be the best versions of ourselves because that's what we're here to do on this planet. We're here to help each other grow into our best selves so we can live our best fucking lives. Okay, done with this. DM me if you have any questions about this, about mascara, about whatever. Love you guys. Talk to you next week.